Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Generation Gap. Uh, I am your host, question mark. You are totally the host, Jordy. Okay. Uh, (laughs) This is a podcast where three men, well, two men and a pubescent teenager, talk about three movies. Uh, I am Jordan. I am the pubescent teenager that we just mentioned. You're 15? I'm 15, yes. I'm Eric Lendegaard. Uh, I reviewed movies for the Seattle Times about 15 years ago, and I did a lot of stuff for MSNBC. And now I just, you know, waste time on my own website with movie reviews. Here's the real critic. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. But uh, my name is Bob Lundegaard, and I am uh, Jordy's grandfather, Eric's dad. And I reviewed movies for quite a few years uh, at the Minneapolis Tribune. Uh, That was mostly in the 1970s and 80s. So we got three generations here. I'm the young one, the uh, millennial, would you say? I guess. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm a millennial also, a different millennial. And we're going to start talking about uh, The Four Feathers, which is the appropriate movie to start with because this is is an amateur effort of a podcast, uh, and The Four Feathers is an amateur effort of a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch! Uh, Basically, we decided it was kind of... um, a haphazard way this came about, the three movies that we decided to do. Um, but um, what it's turned out to be was movies that were influential for each of us uh, as we were growing up. So we started out with The Four Fe- Feathers for my father, who was born in 1932. The movie came out in 1939. Um, Star Wars for me, I was born in 63. Star Wars obviously came out in 77. And for Giordo, um, it's uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. 2010 release 2009 actually. 2009 release Ooh, sorry and um and he was born in 2001 um and to talk about the four feathers here's my father bob lundegaard thanks sir <coughs> i was afraid i'd reveal my age by uh, talking about this movie but eric has already taken care of that problem uh four feathers has a long history it was a 1902 novel by a now very obscure writer named A.E.W. Mason. So obscure that nobody remembers what the A.E.W. even stands for. It's had at least eight versions, uh, beginning with two silent movies and two recent uh, productions, uh, with uh, the stars being um, Keith, no, Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger and Bo Bridges. But by common consensus, the best of the versions is a 1939 movie, and that's what I choose to talk about. It was made in Britain by the Korda family, three brothers actually. They were uh, emigrants from Hungary, whom some people said became more British than the British themselves. They made some great uh, movies, and this is, I think, one of the best. Why is it so good? Because, and this is, I think, why the story has had uh, great legs over the uh, 115 years since it was written. Namely, it's a tale of redemption and revenge. And I think uh, that motif is very strong in in so many of my favorite uh, works of art. For instance, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo is probably the greatest revenge story ever written. And more currently, 
Uh, another uh, movie that has great legs, it's on television almost every month, is The Shawshank Redemption. And that certainly has uh, a great tale of revenge. Essentially, The Four Feathers is a story of a man who, uh, as a child, uh, and we see that, that scene at the beginning of the movie, he's terrified uh, uh, by a dinner at which these uh, army veterans talk about uh, people who uh, showed cowardice uh, at the moment of uh, great military importance. And as a result, their lives were absolutely ruined. Several of them took their own lives and were in disgrace. Uh, that story haunts him, and we skip about 15 years to the time when his regiment uh, is about to uh, sail for Egypt. Uh, yes, to avenge the um, disaster that occurred there 10 years earlier by the forces of uh, General Chinese Gordon. Uh, the English are going back to avenge that defeat by the natives uh, in Egypt. He resigns his commission on the day, but, go ahead. Oh, uh, this gentleman, uh, Harry Faversham, whom we've already met, uh, resigns his commission on the eve of his departure, and uh, three of his so-called friends uh, send him uh, feathers of white feathers of cowardice with their uh, uh, names attached to them. Uh, there are only three of them. The fourth feather, feather of the title comes from his uh, fiancée, uh, Esme Burroughs, Ethne, Ethne Burroughs, who uh, uh, turns her back on him, in effect. She doesn't call him a coward, but he says, I think there should be four feathers here. And he plucks one uh, from her fan and forces her to hand it to him. So... The rest of the movie is his attempt to redeem himself in the eyes of his uh, comrades and his fiancée. And himself. And himself, of course. Uh, he begins by uh, uh, disguising himself as a, uh, a native of a tribe that has had their tongues cut out. He does not have his tongue cut out, but he uh, has a uh, scar branded uh, onto his forehead, which means that uh, he is immediately identified as a mute. And therefore, he never has to say anything, and he can disguise his English accent very easily that way by never opening his mouth. Uh, one of his three comrades... Uh, played brilliantly by Ralph Richardson, the first time I had ever seen this marvelous actor, uh, becomes blinded in the desert, uh, and everybody else has disappeared from the scene, either fled or uh, killed uh, in a skirmish uh, by the natives against his English uh, regiment. He leave, he's all by himself, realizes he's blind and tries to blow his brains out, but uh, uh, Harry Faversham is uh, Johnny on the spot, grabs the gun, and then proceeds to take him 
miles across the desert and safely to an English uh, fort. Uh, but without uttering a word the entire trip. So, And because the man is blind, he doesn't, of course, recognize uh, his old comrade-in-arms. Uh, and Yes. So hold on a second. Just speaking of not being able to uh, utter an entire word, um, do you think we're going to get a word in edgewise here, Jordy? <laughs> uh, I think this is my only word that I'm going to get in. One, because you know a lot more about this movie than us. Uh, and two, because I saw the movie about a month ago, um, and I barely remember anything about it. It grows on you. It grows on you. Well, I mean, one thing that I, I will say about this is that uh, of the three of us, uh, I think of my father as the diva of the group, uh, the Marilyn Monroe or the Barbara Streisand in this sense. Um, uh, Monroe and Streisand would often take many, many takes uh, before they would be able to do a scene. They would work up to a scene and they'd, you know, and whereas a lot of their other actors, uh, uh, of the other actors around them um, were ready immediately. Right. And both Jordy and I were ready last month to do this. <laughs> and so we had all this down in our heads and and my father had not watched them yet. So we had to wait on my father, the diva of the group, uh, to be able to uh, to do this uh, podcast for you guys. But uh, uh, on the plus side, you watched Fantastic Mr. Fox again today. Is that right, Jordy? Yes, I did. And I rewatched uh, The Four Feathers. So for the second time this year um and it's bits of it that's way uh, too much you think so yeah uh parts of it are a lot of fun you know but uh, it is uh definitely old school um but anyway um w one thing i did want to talk about uh, in terms of the revenge stories you mentioned because a revenge tale is a uh is a genre into itself yeah. these days particularly from hollywood but all the revenge stories that you mentioned are uh, people who, and I don't even really think of this as a revenge story. It's it's more of a re redemptive story. Yeah, he's not really getting, revenge. he's not really getting revenge, but Count of Monte Cristo is a real revenge story. And no, so is, actually, in in the Count of Monte Cristo, his revenge is to ruin the careers of the people who send him to prison for life in Devil's Island. Right. Uh, in this case, uh, it's redemption because he doesn't punish these people, and on the contrary, he rescues them from disaster and he wants to be their friends he yes. still wants to be their friends absolutely and he wants his fiance back yes uh, and i would too if, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you would remember her in the movie she was lovely now i mean i think maybe you're suggesting that i told talk no, too no, no, much no. Oh. no 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 so keep going i just wanted to interrupt qu uh, quickly and uh, and then hand it back because I don't really have too much more to say. What I want to emphasize is that there were a couple of scenes uh, in the movie that uh, uh, even when I watch this for the 20th time, send shivers down my spine. There's one in which uh, Ralph Richardson, uh, who I mentioned earlier, has become blinded by the desert sun. He lost his pith helmet and fell and uh, was staring at this uh, uh, clear sky for hours until he recovered, and that apparently um, ruined his optic nerve. So here he is back in England, and he visits a doctor, not for consultation, but an old family friend. Uh, Who's also uh, sort of the um, 
advisor to young Harry, right? Exactly. He's almost a Greek chorus because he's in almost every important scene. He was at the original, uh, uh, what's called a Crimean night in the... Um, uh, in the original book, in fact, it's the title of the first chapter, Crimean, because these gentlemen talk about the Crimean War in uh, very, very uh, glowing uh, terms as compared to the fighting in Egypt. We, where all you had to do is deal with a band of fuzzy wuzzies. <laughs> Which the name itself is so problematic. I know. Uh, yeah, any, I, I, I didn't. I didn't even really understand what the fuzzy wuzzies was referring to for a while. I oh. just found it funny. I was sort of like fuzzy wuzzies. They keep saying that, and that just makes me laugh. But apparently, it's a derogatory term. So, you know, I think it's better that most people don't know that because fuzzy wuzzy is sort of a fun thing to say. A, derog- a derogatory term for Arabs in the movie. Yes. 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 Very much. Or uh, Egyptian natives. I don't, I don't know whether they were Arabs or not. Probably so. Anyway, um, let's see. Where was I? Oh, he's visiting this doctor. Uh, and um, he's uh, trying to... Um, he, well, he, he tells him that he's visiting a specialist because he thinks he can recapture uh, his uh, eyesight. But in order to show how far he's progressed with his Braille, he grabs a book, opens it at random, and runs his fingers over the page and proceeds to say something like, uh, Be not afeard, the aisle is full of noises, sounds and sweet airs that give delight and hurt not. And the doctor says to him, That's marvelous, John. He says, Yes, isn't it? I've known that passage since childhood. The first thing I wanted to do was discover the source of that passage. It it turns out to be Shakespeare's last play, The Tempest. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and I only quoted about a third of it. But uh, oddly enough, it's spoken by a half-savage named Caliban, who is plotting to overthrow the uh, uh, governor of the island in The Tempest, the the real hero of the story. And take her daughter. Yes, of course. Right? That's right, Miranda. I think so. I think Miranda. So who's the half savage in this? There isn't any. In the four feathers. No. Well, you could argue that it's Harry, who dresses himself up as a, as a half savage. That's not bad. According to the period of the time, you know, 1930s and even before then, in the 1890s, when yeah. it was set. Yeah. Uh, by the way, dressing up as a uh, quote half savage today would definitely not slide. Um, and we are not endorsing it in any way. Um, that occurred to me also when they make fun of the fuzzy wuzzies. Well, yeah. But. <laughs> Goes without saying. But one other scene, even more so than this one that I have just described about the passage from the Tempest. Uh, at dinner with uh, Ethne and uh, the doctor and Ethne's father, played by C. Aubrey Smith, the the apotheosis of the English gentleman. So much so that he, uh, he uh, a cartoon version of him became a regular feature on the Tennessee, Tennessee Tuxedo cartoon <laughs> show. Yeah. It was called Colonel McBrag, and he was always talking about his great exploits in the British Empire. And anyway, at this dinner, uh, the Ralph Richardson character, the blind man, uh, proceeds to describe his... Uh, 
what he called a harrowing adventure with this uh, mute uh, Arab who uh, saved his life. Uh, and he says, the extraordinary thing about it is, was that having done enough to earn the Victoria Cross, the scoundrel proceeds to try and rob me right in the sight of a British fort. Well, he wasn't trying to rob him. He was planting a white feather with the gentleman's name on it in an envelope. And he says, uh, poor, gentle, poor devil, I had no money on me. Uh, the only thing I had was this letter from you, Ethne. And he, uh, he says, there's a little desert sand in it. And she tips it over. And he's blithely talking away while the three of them look in horror at this feather with the name John Durrance right. on it. And so, of course, they know. So, well, and what happened to your uh, little Arab friend? <laughs> he said, I don't know. I was in uh, uh, unconscious for days, and by the time I came to, uh, he was gone. I never, I tried vainly to find him and everything. And so, I, but he discovers at the end of the movie um, yeah, by, he figures it out, but that's a great scene. But they don't—they don't really look on in horror. I mean, they look on in shock, shock, shock. But at the same time, they realize, oh, Harry's alive. This is—I mean, on some level, that's a positive. Yes, I think so. Yes, even for them. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's you know, in fact, the first thing uh, the doctor says is, "So Harry's alive, or was?" Right when he rescued uh, John. Right. But, of course, they don't know what's happened to him. So here's a quick question uh, about what Harry does when he's there and what he keeps from uh, Captain John Durrance, who is also his rival for the affections of Etni. Yes, in fact, by this time they're engaged. Right. He is, so Harry has lost Etni or Ethne. 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 E-T-H-N-E. Right. Beautiful um, name. You pronounce the th. Apparently. I do. Okay. So uh, Harry has lost Ethne, and uh, Captain Durrance has her. But of the three to whom he returns the feather, uh, his various friends, Burroughs and Willoughby, good old Willoughby. Yes, that's right. They always call him that. <laughs> they never use his first name. Even. No, it's always Peter and good old Willoughby. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but anyway, of the three, he lets... Peter and Willoughby know fairly quickly that he's Harry Faversham, whereas he drags John Durrance through the desert for a week. <laughs> this poor blind guy who doesn't know where he's being uh, dragged. Yes. And, and yeah, for all he knows, it could be to an Arab uh, and never jail. says a word. That that's that seems slightly sadistic to me. Yeah. I, the, when I was watching the movie, I'm going the entire time like. This is your friend. You're kind of be like, <laughs> you're tracking him through the desert without telling him that you're alive or anything. And you can talk. It's not like you're forbidden to. So the entire time I was wondering, why is he not talking? Do you have a theory? No. <laughs> but it occurred to me, and I'm willing to acknowledge this. I think those long scenes in the desert while he's rescuing Willoughby are Durance. the weakest Durrance. Yeah, not good old Willoughby. Uh, those are the weakest part of the movie. Mm. I think the strongest parts are the ones back in England, dealing with uh, C. Aubrey Smith and his daughter and uh, right. the uh, 
the English uh, gentry at uh, play are, are kind of interesting. Uh, what happens at the very end, uh, the, um, the doctor visits um, Durrance in his uh, uh, London apartment on the day that the uh, Khartoum victory is announced, and bells are ringing, people are in the streets cheering like crazy, and he arrives with a bulletin from the English correspondent for the Daily Mail or whatever paper it was. He says, do read it to me, doctor, you know, uh, and he does, and he says, yeah, and that's where we come across Peter and good old Willoughby, they're alive, they helped rescue them. And then, they and then they said, uh, he says, read, read the rest of it. Uh, is there any more? And he says, yes. Uh, they were aided in their uh, rescue by a, um, a former member of their regiment disguised as, a as, a, as an Arab native who was once, and then uh, Durance, says the Durance uh, announces Lieutenant Harry Favisham. And then he goes over to his... Uh, uh, desk, and he says, "But why would he try to rob me?" Right. And then he reaches in and sees the feather that he realizes they have all seen. And then he writes this, or he doesn't. He dictates to the doctor an elegant letter uh, that's just beautiful in its composition. So what's interesting about the movie, on some level, is that um, uh, Harry first. Uh, decides to resign from the regiment uh, because he thinks that what they're doing there is foolish. But then that never comes up again, right? What, what the British Empire is doing in Egypt in the first place is he, uh, uh, he thinks it's, it's ridiculous that they're, you know, spending uh, blood and treasure abroad. He says it briefly, no, too. No, it, it does come up again because... Uh, on the day that his regiment marches, the doctor discovers him in the street, and he says, you know, come back to my flat and let's talk about this. He knows pretty much what uh, uh, caused Harry right. to decide not to go with his regiment. Mm -hmm. And then he says, you know, if what you told me, Harry, uh, about needing to work on the... Uh, uh, the family estate. If that is true, then these letters are in, in these feathers are an insult to be tossed in the fireplace. Sure. And uh, he says, "No, they're not." If it, uh, he knows that they're uh, uh, an indication uh, that he says, "My friends know me better than I know myself." Because he he realizes that he is in fact a coward. Yes, but he, but he's also correct, right? What's interesting is, he, you know... Oh, yeah. He could defend it on that basis. In fact, he does when he's talking to Ethne. Right. We've talked about this so many times. Uh, the waste of, uh, you know, uh, glory in Africa, glory in India, glory in China. <laughs> by, the, by the way, yeah, he's quoting this movie offhand. He doesn't have, like, a notepad in front of him or anything. He's just, like, he's <laughs> memorized this entire thing, which... I don't know. That's an interesting to, thing that's to do for fair, the know. four feathers, but <laughs> well, maybe we ought to switch to another movie. No, no, but I mean, but it's you know, it's the Star Wars of his day for him, yeah, and and you know, most of us can quote uh, great lengths of Star Wars, yeah. and but and let's face it, the Star Wars lines are a little shorter, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and not as memorable. <laughs> <laughs>
as long as we're getting to Star Wars. Uh, well, we don't have to get to Star Wars. First, I mean, what's also fascinating was that this movie, was uh, The Four Feathers, um, was released in August, August 3rd, 1939. Wow. Um, so, yeah, in terms of the world situation at that time, it was probably a time when uh, the British public could use a little brace of patriotism. Right. So I think there's sort of a, a, a mixed message about uh, um, British adventures abroad, certainly the British military. But it, it was, in fact, released uh, a month before, and exa- months to the day before Britain declared war on Germany. Yeah. Um, oh, wait a minute. As long as we're talking about Four Feathers, I wanted to just mention uh, very briefly, I hope, C. Aubrey Smith. Uh, I was of C. Aubrey Smith. Yes, well, we were earlier. I thought he was one of the luckiest actors in movies because all he had to do to do his lines was to repeat what had just been said to him by the previous uh, actor. In fact, said to him twice in case he couldn't hear it the first time. He said, uh, Harry Faversham, by the way, this is how he uh, gets his fourth feather. Uh, Ethne insists that uh, uh, he has to redeem her feather as well. And he does it by talking about her father's so-called escapade in the Crimean War. Which, he, which he's been blathering about for the entire movie. That's right. And he said, sir, that never happened. <laughs> never happened? <laughs> no, but he says again, never happened. And he's like, never happened. <laughs> and he does that two, two more times. I mean, I, I wish as an actor I could have had the benefit of having my lines read to me just before I have to say them. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about Four Feathers. Well, I think C. Aubrey Smith has the best line. It's one of the only things I remember about the movie where he's talking about the thin red line and all that stuff. Um, I think the Four Feathers is all right. I mean, it was... I. It, it might have been expectations a little bit because, I mean, the cover was like this beautiful sort of like Lawrence of Arabia-esque shot of two people traveling through the through the desert together. So I was like, oh, it's going to be an epic. And it was mainly it just, was. it's sort of an epic. A silent epic at that point. <laughs> um, and I think that it may be expectations because most of the movie is aristocrats talking about some stuff that I didn't find as interesting. Honor and duty. Honor and duty. Ugh, gross. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's... I think that it fills you with a childlike wonder. I think all of these movies do for each of us individually, I think. I think that's very true. I like. I agree with that, totally. Uh, but I think for most modern-day audiences, this is not going to be one that they're going to enjoy very much. But I think that it's great that you enjoy it. So. Well, the Bible says, when I was a child, I spake as a child. But now that I am grown up, I have put away childish things. And? That's it. No, but how does this relate? How does this relate to what we're talking about? Because when I reviewed Star Wars, I was no longer a child. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. But I was. Um, I mean, on one level, what's kind of fascinating about each of these movies that we're doing, and we just picked them at random, really. You know, I mean, we picked Four Feathers because... Uh, we thought it would be an interesting movie to talk about with uh, my father 
uh, we, we talked about, uh, we picked Star Wars, less because it, it was so influential, not only on me, but the culture, but because my father, who was the movie critic at the time for the Star Tribune, uh, or just the Tribune at the time, I guess, um, yeah. uh, gave it a, a, a middling review um, for which he got no end of grief. <laughs> um, and um, and then Fantastic Mr. Fox, because uh, that was a favorite of Jordy's, and he's a big Wes Anderson fan, sort of. Um, but anyway, I mean, what's fascinating about each of these movies, again, picked at random, is that they are all backwards looking. That uh, The Four Feathers, which was released in 1939, takes place in the 1890s. It's a 19th century right. movie um, about the British Empire as uh, at its height as the British Empire is crumbling. Um, so it's 40 years earlier. Uh, Star Wars, obviously took place a long time ago in a galaxy far, long, far long away. Time ago. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Is it really two longs? It's two longs. Okay. Um, that doesn't make a right. Uh, oh, <laughs> two longs don't make a right. That's very good. Um, but anyway, Star Wars, a lot of Star Wars was based upon uh, the movie serials that George Lucas saw as a kid. Um, I think he mostly saw them in the uh, probably the 50s. But uh, a lot of what Star Wars is is sort of a throwback to the movies that George Lucas saw when he was young. Along with Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, which is one. I mean, the plot of that is the main. Also, the swipe, uh, uh, the way of uh, changing um, uh, scenes, swiping across comes uh, definitely from Kurosawa's um the Hidden Fortress, but I think the reason why it uh, was such a huge success, and why it's had such a long life, is that it took, uh, you know, B, uh, a B movie or a movie serial and uh, sped it all up and gave it A production values. And then, and then the final one, Fantastic Mr. Fox, is also based uh, on a 1970s uh, book by Roald Dahl. Yeah. So they're all based on something that... Uh, occurred uh, probably when the filmmakers were children themselves and um, anyway um, but so let's talk about Star Wars Jordy well I think it's hard to when you're talking about Star Wars it's hard not to talk about the entire like mythology of Star Wars because it's it's basically a legend now I mean like Everyone kind of watches it as a kid, and I hadn't watched it for a while beforehand. And it, when you're watching it, like, and you're, tr I mean, I sat down and I'm like, I'm gonna watch this as a film, not as, as Star Wars. You know, I want to watch this and give my honest opinion of it. And it's really hard not to because, even if you've only seen the movie like once beforehand, say you already know, well, maybe you don't know, best <laughs> of Bob, but, um. I mean, it's hard not to look at that and say, oh, that's C-3PO, and that's R2-D2, and that's the Jawa, and that's Obi-Wan Kenobi, our Grand Moff Tarkin, there he is, um, and all these all these famous characters, especially like, especially Han and Luke and Leia and all of them, but, I mean, I think the entire mythology of Star Wars is fascinating just because there's people that, I mean, there's like, I, I, a couple days ago, I saw a Jimmy Kimmel sketch that came out during the last year's Force Awakens, mm -hmm. where... Um, all the cast members of that competed against uh, a third grader who was, both of them were being quizzed on 
New Hope or Star Wars. Sorry, please don't kill me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to refer to it as Star Wars from now on because that's the original title. <laughs> and if it's if I, some people are very insistent on not calling it a New Hope, but he's talking about. Oh no, yeah, I I prefer Star Wars too. I mean, some part of me thinks if um, George Lucas had called it a New Hope back in 1977, I don't think it would have done that well. Yeah, yeah Star Wars and is I'd a much better. I'd still be a movie title. critic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, this this third grader is—they're both of them are being quizzed on it, and this third grader has this undeniable Star Wars knowledge for the the, the most trivial things, like what what. Um, which which bay was the Millennium Falcon located in? Oh my God! And it's ninety four, right? Uh, and like you know, none of the cast knows it, but this kid knows it, and he knows like he's going to uh, some station to, or Tashi Station to pick up some power converters, right? Right. It's like these most trivial lines of dialogue. Like I, so part of me thinks that bullseye womp rats, my T sixteen <laughs> back home. Part of me thinks that if this movie was, if everyone knew this trivial kind of knowledge about something like, um, I don't know, Synecdoche, New York or something, the world would be a very smart place because we'd all understand that movie or something. We, you know, it's a very complicated movie from 2000. Well, well I thought I was displaying my vast knowledge by pointing out all in my uh, mildly critical review uh, by uh, citing all the sources of the uh, uh, movie, you agree? Right, and uh, I mean, and a lot of them. True? Isn't that true? And a lot of them are, in fact, uh, what I was just talking about. They're they're throwbacks to um, when George Lucas was a child, to thirty years or forty years earlier. Sure. Although I think Lucas was probably in his thirties when he did Star Wars. Um, but yeah, this is from my father's uh, review that was in the Minneapolis Tribune, June fifth, nineteen seventy-seven. He says, it's got some Flash Gordon, of course, but there's also a good hunk of The Wizard of Oz, um, which I think, uh, I think people have made that reference before, but uh, I yeah. think you were, the, you were probably well, the first to do it. reading me, yes. <laughs> and uh, a good hunk of The Wizard of Oz with a gold English-speaking version of The Tin Woodman and an apish version of The Cowardly Lion looking for the yellow brick road in the sky and a tribe of sand people that sound suspiciously like munchkins. I think he actually meant Jawas. Right, the Jawas are more Munchkin-like. But just to get back at what you're talking about, um, if the world would be smarter if we uh, knew all the trivia about Schenectady, New York, and there's probably some people that do. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, my fa my father ends his review this way. He says, "There's a cornball story interred somewhere in the mishmash, something about an interplanetary rebellion, a kidnapped princess." And then, parenthetically, more of a take-charge type than we're accustomed to in costume epics. Um, and the attempt to recover some secret plans. And then he says, your kids will love it, and you may too, but leave your brains at home. Yeah, that's what you said. And, and uh, American moviegoers have been leaving their brains at home ever since. You were right. They said, good idea. <laughs> it's a little sad. But I remember when it came out. I mean, it was... It was it was so startling. It was uh, it was so unlike anything that was out there. Uh, I remember commercials for it and just thinking, uh, you know, what was this odd, odd thing? Because we didn't have movies like that. We didn't have science fiction movies that were for kids. 
uh, or for the entire family. We didn't have movies with happy endings for the most part. Uh, this was the era in which you know you often got very downbeat uh, endings. Uh, this is an era in which um, you know The Exorcist uh, was a top uh, uh, money maker, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Star Wars was completely new, and I remember seeing it at the St. Louis Park Theater, which is the only theater that had it, I think, in in the Twin Cities. Lines stretching around the corner. I saw it with my friend Peter Lacey back in 1977, and um, and then I think I saw it a week later. It was, it was and, and and it was truly the start for me of going again and again to see a movie, right? Uh, which is now what everybody does, I guess, or they wait for the DVD version. It this is the movie that uh, really began um, the blockbuster mentality, which. Um, and I almost feel like I should apologize for helping create by being uh, uh, such a huge Star Wars fan. That said, um, it's shockingly imaginative uh, from George Lucas. I think the most imaginative thing he, uh, is the first line, which is a long, long time ago <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. The idea that um, he's making a futuristic movie, but he's setting it in the past and far in the past and in another galaxy, which I think is pretty brilliant to do, which allows him to do anything, right? Allows him to create entire worlds, um, entire peoples, um, and he does. And I just like, um, I like so many of the things that, uh, uh, so many of the ideas that he comes up with. Yeah, the best part of Star Wars is definitely the creativity. Like, it, when I was watching it, I think I got half of the childlike wonder that I get while watching Fantastic Mr. Fox. And I mean, like, I think each of us get that full childlike experience from our respective pick. But I mean, it's going to be hard to say this because uh, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> Star Wars is one of the most popular movies of all time. Right. But I, out of all of the, tons of franchises out there a lot of them screw themselves up and I don't think Star Wars is an exception from that because after this we got Empire Strikes Back which which is to be fair m you know mainly considered the best one we're not doing that best one we're doing the original Return of the Jedi which a lot of people criticize the Ewoks and that and all that other stuff you got the prequels which everyone kind of agrees are pretty shitty um <laughs> Some people don't even acknowledge them. Yes, some people don't even acknowledge them. Uh, and then you have uh, The Clone Wars, which was an animated one, which nobody really liked. Force Awakens, which was generally liked by people, but is very criticized as well. People say that Rey is a... Um, well, it's also somewhat derivative of Star Wars 4 and New, New Hope. Yes, always, always, yes, somewhat derivative of that. The plot is very similar. And then you have Rogue One, which just came out, which... Uh, Star Wars 3.5. Star Wars 3.5, which Eric and I have seen, and we're both kind of like, eh. It's pretty good. But. It's okay. Um, but I mean, like, so out of that, let's say that uh, Star Wars, not going to call it A New Hope, and The Empire Strikes Back are the two ones that are generally considered to be the best ones, right? But I mean, like, even in these ones, there's still a lot of stuff that when, normally when I'd see that, I'd be like, ugh. Like, it opens with an expositional title crawl instead of like giving us information subtly and all that stuff it gives us to us in a bunch of text that we're all supposed to take down which 
I mean, actually kind of like, and and that is definitely one of the throwbacks to uh, movie serials. It's a it's that that slow crawl was right out of Flash Gordon and uh, and all. I mean, and, and tons of movie serials. Uh, I recently saw uh, the movie uh, two Green Hornet movie serials from 1940, and they they did the, that slow crawl. You know, it's it's a it's kind of a fascinating device. But anyway, th- that doesn't bug me. It, it was just fair. By the time it came back in 1977, it was innovative. Wait around. What are you doing watching Green Hornet serials? That, that'll be for another podcast. <laughs> make, make sure you watch your Green Hornet, Dad. There is going to be another podcast? <laughs> a Green Hornet serial podcast? No, no, no. We're okay. not going to do that. Okay. okay, I'm glad. I don't want to watch those. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, the other thing I forgot to mention, actually, um, are the special editions of Star Wars, which were approved by George Lucas, right? And you have you have no idea what we're talking about, right? That's okay. <laughs> I had my moment in the sun. <laughs> so, but so you had a problem with some of the stuff in in Star Wars, one of which was the crawl. I interrupted you on that. What were some of the other things? Um I don't I was just given a crawl as an example. I I think this is a I I'm not going to crap all over Star Wars. I think this is a really good movie actually. I mean, what's interesting to me is uh, the uh, just talking about uh, the most recent film, um, Star Wars 3.5. Um, I think of what my father just said, the biblical quote, you know, uh, when I was a child, I spake as a child and then I put away childish things. Uh, when I saw Star Wars in 1977, I loved the roller coaster ride. You know, the roller coaster ride of an adventure, this nonstop adventure. Uh, peopled with uh, archetypes, right? The uh, um, the young farm boy on a uh, mission of heroism. You know, he's on the heroic journey, um, and uh, the the bad boy who is uh, redeems himself. You know, Han Solo. Uh, all these different uh, archetypes. Redemption again. Redemption again, um, and. Uh, I just I, and my favorite in a way was Obi Wan Kenobi, um, uh, and my favorite line was uh, the scene. Um, is that outside of Los Eyes? What was it called? Los Eyes Cantina. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really the cantina, but it was just as they're you know they're stopped by the stormtroopers. These oh, yeah. are not the droids you're looking These for. Aren't the droids you're looking for. I was like, oh my god, that's so cool. It's the coolest thing. Yeah. Um, so I loved all this, and I loved the roller coaster ride. But by the time you know, but. Now I'm 53 and uh, I'm a little tired of the roller coaster ride. I get very bored watching movies today uh, because of the roller coaster ride. Okay. Well, you asked me about some other stupid stuff that I thought, and looking through the brief notes I took. Um, yeah, brief. Brief. <laughs> uh, there's the Sand People, which attack Luke, and uh, eventually Obi Wan rescues them. But they're like basically apes that just go uh, 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 and just sort of hit people with sticks but even there I mean some of the cleverness when I saw Star Wars again as an adult in the 90s I remember the line uh, that Obi-Wan has and it's partly the Alec Guinness he's a good actor and he sells this stuff but he says uh, uh, sand people always uh, travel single file to hide their numbers and I always thought that was really interesting you know I, I just like little details like that um, so I thought that was pretty good. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt again. Oh, that's fine. And then the, um, now it's sort of a meme, I guess. Oh, voice crack. Lovely. Uh, now it's sort <laughs> of a meme, but, um, 
the stormtroopers cannot hit anything. They have the worst aim imaginable. And I guess now it's sort of an internet joke or a meme. You, you know what a meme is? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, but he, but you, you know what? That that's a trope of most movies in general. It's like uh, you'll have however many bad guys shooting at the two good guys, and the two good guys don't get hit. I know. You know. That's what made me laugh. Yeah, a bad aim is a, a, a staple of action movies, yeah. westerns especially. Right. But should we excuse it because it's a staple of action movies? I mean, I think there's a lot of things in, well, not a lot of things, but there's some things in here that are kind of dumb, and I think. You know, as a child, you won't notice them, and I'm sure there's other stuff I'm not noticing because I'm still half-child. Um, but, Jordy, would you rather that they hit Luke and Han and Leia? Would you want that to happen? Yeah, that would be pretty awesome. In <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't expect it, I guess. But... Or, or Chewie, my God. Oh, Chewie. Chewie and R2 are the best part of... Uh, Star Wars for you for me because they're hilarious and I think in a, a lot of action movies today um, <coughs> Batman v Superman um, are lacking a sense of humor and a sense of sort of I mean if everything is so serious it's no fun to watch right and these, this is fun to watch partly just because of Chewie and R2 and their comic relief aspect also C-3PO I guess but not not as funny for me, but yeah. So quick question. The your two favorite characters are the two that don't speak any English at all. Any comment upon that? Uh I'm wearing a Charlie Chaplin shirt right now. So <laughs> Good comeback. <laughs> I mean, most uh I guess that does make my sense of humor more um visual? Visual sense of humor, yeah. And and audio. And yeah. Um but I mean, when I'm about to talk about Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is a very witty film. So, particularly since we only have 14 minutes left. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Wrap well, it up, Jordy. <laughs> Star Wars is a very good movie. I think that it does have problems, but I do think it is. It def. It is. I think it's more notable that because of its influence on the culture. It's less of a film. It's an iconic legend at this point, and. I think that we need to acknowledge that, but I still think it's a very good movie. I just don't... I'm not sure that it's quite the masterpiece that some fans make it out to be. But it's still very fun. It's very fun, and I think that it's a lot more fun than most of the action movies being released today. But I still think it's rooted in a blockbuster... Um, but it's not a blockbuster. Well, it is a blockbuster. It's the first blockbuster. It's which one? Star Wars. Oh, I'm sorry. I was talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a huge. How, how did that? Do? How did uh, that do? Fantastic Mr. Fox. Not well. <laughs> to say the truth, I hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it. Yeah, no. Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, did well for a Wes Anderson movie, meaning that it, it probably got. Well, we can look it up, but I think it got about thirty million U.S. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to Fantastic Mr. Fox now, which is, um, I would call it one of my favorites of all time. Um, because, well, for, I, first I want to mention Wes Anderson, who I think is a good director. I think he's made 
some really great movies. I think this, Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, Rushmore is very good, and Royal Tenenbaums are all very good movies. And then I think um, Zisu, Darjeeling Limited, um, to a lesser extent, Moonrise Kingdom, that's very good. And I'm pretty much the only person ever that's not in love with the Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, but I think he's a very interesting filmmaker just in the way that uh, he has sort of become an art house icon, which it's hard to become an art house icon because there's not, I mean, there's little enough people going to the art house already. But he just. And also, there's no money in it. There's no money in it. Um, but Wes Anderson has made his sort of. Um, He's he's made himself very popular in the art house community just because he has such a blatant style. It's so obvious that when you look at the way he frames his shots and the way his dialogue things, uh, his his dialogue works. He's one of he's. I mean, you know, there's not many directors that get parodied as much as what's. Yeah, I mean, like to a certain extent, it's like, is that a good thing? Because I mean, if you go on YouTube, you can find. Wes Anderson directs superhero movie. Wes Anderson directs a porno. You know, it's like he's a very imitatable filmmaker. But I think that um, I would call Fantastic Mr. Fox's best film because, first off, I think his style is very childlike in some ways. And I think when he's doing a children's film, it works very well. Um, I mean, like, let's just talk about some. I think this movie is one of the funniest movies ever made that I've ever seen. Because there's so many little gags in it that, uh, you know, the whistle that he does, his trademark, which, yeah, there you go. Um, there's cuss, you know, how they frequently say cuss throughout. They cuss um, by saying cuss. They cuss by saying cuss. There's a, I mean, at the end, near the end of the movie, there's graffiti that just says cuss, you know? it's it's. <laughs> I, I miss that. That's great. Yeah. But it's very, I think that his, um, his humor is... Often it has a motif to it. There's a lot of in-jokes throughout the movie. And I think that's a good thing to do because, I mean, even after hearing people say cuss for an hour, it was still funny seeing the cuss graffiti, you know. Um, but I think there's also wit here. Um, there's some lines that really made me laugh out loud. For example, um, Christofferson, um, when, he, when he's angry, he goes back and he says, I'm going to go meditate for half an hour or something <laughs> along that line. And it's just very, <laughs> I mean, no one says that in real life, but it's a very precise thing to say, and I found it extremely funny. But I also think that um, this is so much fun to watch. I mean, like, when you analyze something like I try to do, you know, I, I, I was looking very closely at Fantastic Mr. Fox on my watch today, and I'm like, all right, so this means this, and this means that, and this, and in a certain way, you can't do that with this because it's just so much fun to watch it. It, you know, by the end of the movie when they're all dancing, um, in the supermarket, by the way, I should explain the plot. Actually. Um, we don't need to explain the plot of star Wars. We didn't do that, but yeah, we don't have to explain the plot. Of you know, the plot star of star Wars. Wars. Uh, fantastic. Mr. Fox is about Mr. Fox played by voice by George Clooney. Um, who is basically a thief. Uh, he's a thief of these, Farmers that he lives nearby. Who are named? Her named Bogus Bunsen Bean. Uh, one fat, one's fat, one's short, one is lean. Um, 
But they're all something mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, mean. you know, these horrible crooks, you know, they're so different in looks, but nonetheless, they're equally mean. There we go. Um, <laughs> anyway, at the beginning of the movie, uh, he is not stealing from either one of these farmers, but he, he's dragging his wife along uh, in a fun lateral tracking shot with the Beach Boys, uh, heroes and villains playing underneath. There's a Beach Boys motif in this. Actually, I listened to his audio commentary on the Criterion Blu-ray slash DVD combo. Um, uh, and he said that <laughs> there's a Beach Boys motif here. I'm not really sure why, but that's what we did. And, I mean, that's a very non-pretentious thing to say, you know, instead of this Beach Boys track was here because, you know, it's he 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 looks for a very specific sound in his films that he finds it's not necessarily it's also a throwback it's also a throwback yeah it's usually 1960s era um surfer music which is the beach boys or uh british invasion music yeah. but not beatles well in each one of his movies there's a different motif like zisu has a lot of david bowie all right um moonrise kingdom is um what's their name I can't. I can't remember. Rushmore is a lot of. Um, Rushmore is a lot of British invasion and invasion yeah. in general. Right. But he's got. He tends to have motifs of songs in his film. Um, in his films, uh, actually, Royal Tenenbaums is um, Rolling Stones. He's got a lot of Rolling Stones in there. Mm. She smiled sweetly. Um, it was actually that's a beautiful moment. Anyway, I'm I'm meandering a lot, but. I think that's the point of a podcast. Well, yes, meander. yes, that's that's fair. <laughs> uh, anyway, he his wife becomes pregnant. She tells him that they're pregnant as they are caught in a trap, and he decides that he's going to quit his life of crime and become a father. Um, what does he become? What does he become? Yeah. Well, twelve fox years later, or two years later in normal years, uh, another great <laughs> another great joke. That's a motif among the film. Uh, he is kind of sick of it. Uh, yeah, but what's his job? What job does he get? Oh, he's a columnist, actually. He's a, he works for a newspaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he's still, he's not very happy, so he decides to go on a, um, a last uh, charade of robberies for the, the aforementioned farmer's Bogus Bunsen bean. How about this? Just out of curiosity, do you think uh, if he hadn't... Uh if he hadn't gotten into a big battle with uh, Bogus Bunsen Bean, do you think he would have stopped at the three? Or would he have kept No, away? he would have kept on going, definitely. Because, um, because he's an animal, a wild animal. Um, it's in his nature, yeah. Um, but he goes on the charade, and uh, finally Bean says, I'm not going to take this. We're going to kill him. They camp outside his new tree home, which is a beautiful tree um that was a really weird thing to say um they they managed to shoot off his tail uh and they go really insane and start tearing down the tree as the fox and all the other animals in the community including a badger voiced by bill murray a rabbit who is a chef and is voiced by a chef i think as mario albani or something i don't know um Everyone's displaced. Yeah. Wes Anderson is the only type of person that would cast a real chef as a rabbit chef in his movie. Um, but 
basically it becomes an all-out war between these farmers who are very obsessively wanting to kill this fox and the fox who is trying to survive for one but is um is also learns a lesson on the way about family and who he truly is and community and community uh a lot of kids movies have the message of be yourself right that's just a a great a lot of movies in general a lot of movies in general actually yeah uh, have a message of be yourself because it's an easy message to do. Um, and I think some people would argue that this movie also has a message of be yourself, right? I mean, the um, his child, Ash, um, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, another Wes Anderson motif, <laughs> along with Bill Murray, actually, um, is a very strange kid, right? very strange kid he's got the, I'm always shakes his head different um, and he's also looking up or jealously looking up to the cousin uh, who came over because his father has double pneumonia um, <laughs> uh, and who's very popular he gets there's this girl who provokes his interest uh, Agnes who Christopherson sort of develops a bond with which Ash is, Ash is jealous of um, but in the end he stays himself in his way I mean he does his job in the end because spoiler alert the foxes win I know that's not very expected not just the foxes not the well the animals in general win um, he has his own and in fact you could argue that's how they win yeah by by teaming up together by teaming the... up together yeah another common motif from among film in general so on, on some level it's uh, it's a dual message which is be yourself but be part of a team you know so and uh that could almost be the theme of uh star wars too in a certain sense you know um be true to yourself but also and look inside yourself but when you look inside yourself what you what do you find if you're luke you find um the force the thing that binds us all together and what binds all the animals together in Fantastic Mr. Fox, well, I guess is there, there's nothing that really binds them together, but... They're um, all animals. Because they're all wild animals, and they all need to live up to their true wild animal nature. Yeah, exactly. And that's the be yourself thing that some people interpret, because they're all wild animals. Be yourself. Be a wild animal. But, I mean, throughout the film, they're also very human-like. I mean, the, <laughs> the, the beaver, or the badger has a um has a Macintosh computer in the background. I mean it's a They all have jobs. They all have jobs. They're I mean there's a scene where Bill Murray's just like, you know, you're you she shouldn't buy this tree, Foxy. Your interest rate's horrible. The fixed rate of nine point two, you know, stuff mumbo jumbo that even I don't understand. Uh you guys might uh, a fixed rate of nine point two percent is pretty awful, just FYI. Oh, okay. Don't buy if you're thinking of that. Um, but they're all very, they're all, all very human. But in the end, I think the message of it is be a combination of that. Be, be human and animal, be, be both, which is an interesting message that a lot of things don't, a lot of films and works of entertainment in general wouldn't say because it's like, but that's horrible. You shouldn't change who you are. But I mean, all of us put on personas at multiple times. I'm not the same person. Uh, speaking to you guys right now as I am with my friends or something, you know. 
right? Or, I mean, on some level, it's in Star Wars, Luke looks within himself and finds the Force. Here, all the different animals look within themselves and find a wild animal. That's, that's who they are deep down. Whereas for Harry Faversham, he looks within himself and uh, initially he finds a coward. He thinks of himself as a coward. On some level, you could argue Harry. The problem with Harry is he has imagination that his friends don't have. He can, he can imagine horrible things happening uh, when he goes abroad, whereas the others do not. They don't see themselves uh, being blinded, for example. Whereas Harry can has the imagination to see the bad things that can happen. Um, anyway, ultimately Harry looks within himself and finds a, um, someone who's brave, brave a brave man. Um, anyway, we are uh, we're uh, are we running out of time? Did we want to do this like in an hour? I think so. Okay. I think that's a good amount of time. Yeah. Um, no longer. There we go. Well, uh, anyway, it was uh, this is Eric. It was very interesting uh, talking about these uh, three movies, um, and um, uh, we hope to get and do it again real soon. Yeah. Uh, you can find Eric at Eric Lundegaard. <laughs> uh, EricLundegaard dot com. Uh, there's so that's E R I K L U N D E G A A R D dot com, and on Twitter, I think at the same thing. Yeah, something like that. Um, and if anybody wants to uh, uh, get a copy of my uh, father's original Star Wars review, which, by the way, is paired, this, this lets you know, know. let you know how old it is. It's paired uh, in the movie review section with his review of The Greatest, which is a uh, uh, film biopic of Muhammad Ali starring Muhammad Ali. That's um, pretty fascinating. Um, I kind of panned that too. <laughs> he panned the greatest, and you didn't really pan Star Wars. You just said it wasn't for you, wasn't for you. Um, anyway, um, and here's Dad. Yeah, it's funny. I hadn't read that review. Uh, I don't think since I wrote it, and uh, my recollection, at least originally, was that uh, I was very severe with it. And it seems to me that I do say some nice things about it. And I, it's sort of mildly critical. I just said it, it isn't. I, I think I was reacting uh, a little bit to the uh, the hype that had already been created. In fact, I think I got a kind of a nice line in there. I said it's so popular that they're uh, they're showing it uh, Sunday morning at the St. Louis Park Theater. And I said that's an ungodly hour to show a movie. Is that? Do you know if that's when you saw it? Did you go to the? I think I did. I think I did. All right. Anyway, uh, you can find me at jordyreviews.weebly.com, um, where I occasionally post a review of something that you probably haven't seen, uh, because most people aren't interested in The Handmaiden. Um, and where can you find me? Uh, you're retired now. <laughs> uh, and you can find Bob Lundegaard on Facebook, or if you would like to get in touch with him, uh, you can talk to... Uh, you, you can contact either uh, Jordy or myself. We'll pass along any information. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Oh, okay. All right? Sure. Um, oh, good idea. Uh, and I'll let Jordy close things out. Uh, thank you guys for listening. This, I hope you enjoyed it. This was an amateur effort, so if we do it again, hopefully it'll be much improved. But if you've stuck around till the end, you're... Yeah, clap. <laughs> You're the real hero. <laughs>
You're you're Harry Faversham. Uh, thank you guys. Uh, bye. It was fun. It was I fun. love doing it. That was fun. Yeah. Take it easy, everybody. At least fun for us. <laughs>